0: Psalm 77, you get the Bible verse version of that kind of a song. He asks, Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? He goes on. And he's struggling. So come to the opening verses of Luke chapter 13. That's the response to what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Really from chapter 10. Remember in chapter 10, he sent out the 72 disciples. And they come back and they're buzzing about all the victories that they've seen in their ministry and the ministry that they have. It's been growing. It's been doing good. And he says, okay, that's awesome, but don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then it's the same with Mary and Martha at the end of the chapter. Don't allow getting busy and and, and trying to pursue excellence mean that you miss out sitting at the feet of Jesus because that's where their joy is. That's where we should be anchored. Those that wait upon the Lord, Isaiah 40, they're the ones that renew their strength. So anchor yourself in that. Ministry goes up and down. Anchor yourself in something more firm then chapter 11 follows on from that. The disciples saying, okay, right, well, if that's the case, then teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Teach us to wait in that place, to dwell in that space where we can find strength in you. Because as we said last week, as we went on into chapter 11, the devil is real. The enemy is real. He is a strong man, but Christ is stronger. So we can't do it in our own strength. We have to anchor ourselves in him. And then this morning we pushed on into chapter 12. With the crowd pushing in and Jesus saying to the 12 effectively, with the spotlight on you when you try to seek to live in such a way, the enemy will put pressure on you to try and conform. He'll make you fear. He'll make you half-hearted. He'll make you into a hypocrite if he can. Don't let those things... Don't let anxiety, don't let selfishness, carelessness, all the things that we talked about this morning get in the way of living your life for God. And he closes chapter 12, discern the times. Know what time you're in. Read the times, the seasons and then there's a warning to repent lest they perish. That's how he closes the chapter. Now he's going to continue that because what happens is there's a question then that so many people raise. Well, if that's the case, if, it's, if we just ply on and we're all going to kind of work it out, well, then why does bad stuff still happen? How do we discern that? You're telling us to discern the times, Jesus. Right, we'll discern this. What's, what are we supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to do with this then whenever it comes along our way? Now, most people don't read this passage and go, aha, this is a good biblical question for theology students and philosophers to wrangle out. What happens, even though it is a a question that's asked in Scripture, it is a scriptural question, normally what happens is our experience brings us to a place that doesn't make any sense. And so our experience makes us ask this question, which puts me in a very difficult spot because I know that so many people in church tonight have different experiences, and some will be very potent and very sharp this evening. Others, it, it's maybe more in the memory banks and maybe you're worried about things being reopened. I don't know. That's what makes it a bit dangerous for me. So why do good people suffer? Why does the strong man seem to have it over the stronger man sometimes? Let's read. There were some present at that very time. Jesus has been talking to his disciples, warning them about the spotlight. And they told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's maybe not what you were expecting, although you knew that we'd be in Luke 13, so maybe you should have known that they expect this. So a group approaches Jesus from the crowd. Luke thinks that this is important to include because of the material that he's just shared about the need to get right with God, to repent, to discern the times, to face up to the pressures of the spotlight. And so they immediately go, well, how, what, are we supposed to do with this part of it then? And there's two major calamities that are mentioned. The first one is politically charged and the other is what the insurance companies might call an act of God. Um, You have a leader who goes in and cruelly slaughters people as they seek to worship in the temple. And then the other one, you've got people who are walking by and a tower falls on top of them killing 18. Now, the political one, this could be a reference to an incident that we know historically happened. Pilate, who is of course a Roman, decided to, um, let's say, repurpose money from the temple funds by force so he could fund his aqueduct. So people gathered to protest, but Pilate had plainclothes officers, as it were, in the crowd. And once it got a wee bit hostile, people outraged that he would take money from their temple, like the Babylonians did back in Daniel's day. When the crowd got out of hand, these plainclothes officers sprung into action, killing many, many of those who were there to worship at the temple. Now, it could be that when this happened, it was an attempt to get Jesus to take a stance against Pilate, which, of course, would have not ended very well. He says, well, here's a guy talking against the Roman uh, leader in the area. You get him dragged before Pilate, have him killed. So that's one way of getting rid of Jesus. But if he defends Pilate, if he defends Pilate for doing this, huh, the people will turn against him. So maybe it's a plot to kind of put him in a sticky situation. So, uh, Jesus, what do you think of this incident? Do you stand with the protesters or do you stand with Pilate? There could be something there. To be fair, I don't think the context of the verses allow us to go too far down that path. The thrust of people's questions was, well, why would a God of love, why would a God like that allow this to happen? We can only conclude that it was because these people must have been bad for something so terrible to happen to them, they must have deserved it because God is just, God is holy. And then an event that Jesus then added to the equation. We're not sure exactly where this tower was. It could be that the Tower of Siloam was down at the Pool of Siloam in a corner of Jerusalem, or it could be in the village of Siloam, which was a few miles outside Jerusalem. Either way, 18 people were killed as the tar fell. But Jesus, on both of these occasions, he says, well, is it because they were worse sinners? Is it because that they're bad? It's interesting to it's so interesting to me this week that Jesus doesn't deal with Pilate's sins at all in this. He doesn't get involved in the politics. What's interesting is he doesn't even get in, involved in how innocent people were. He says, well, are they any worse? In fact, he even disregards the whole issue of why would a God of love allow this? He could have dealt with it there and then. He could have said, okay, let me explain the problem of evil in this world. But actually, he goes to a deeper issue at the beginning, right at the very start, that there is something worse than people dying. It's people going into eternity lost. See, what Jesus wanted people to understand in this is that every person dies. Everyone dies. Whether it's by an accident or a heart attack or old age or infancy, it is one of the two certainties that we have in life. The other, of course, being taxes. So death shouldn't really surprise anyone. In fact, everyone will face it. My granddad used to say that death is now so common that there's people dying now that never died before. But there's something far worse than a physical death, and that's a spiritual death, an eternal death. And so Jesus is saying, look, I know you're coming and asking me about why these people died, but the bigger question has to be what happens to someone after they die? Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I remember the first funeral that I did here in the church. Uh, it was of a stillborn baby. And I, I wasn't even the pastor here yet. I was still about seven or eight weeks away from actually being inducted at the start of the October. And I remember standing at the front of the church as a father struggled to walk up this middle aisle with a little coffin that was no bigger than a shoebox in his arms. I I watched as a mum sat uh, there just at the front row, gasping, but she needed to have special permission to get out of hospital just to attend her son's funeral. Since that time, I have done many funerals. Suicide victims, car crash victims, cancer patients, people who died peacefully in their sleep, and many other scenarios. And in each case, I tried to bring out this, this truth that Jesus is bringing out. Now, obviously, at a funeral, I tried to be very, very careful and cautious and sensitive and compassionate in that as well. And notice Jesus isn't dealing with grieving people here. He's dealing with people here posing hypothetical questions and pointing to incidences in the newspaper and saying, well, what about that? I think his tone may have been different if he had been dealing with grieving people at the time. Just bear that in mind as we go through this. But to watch it dawn in people, even in funeral services, that they have now a choice to make that will affect eternity is is, is kind of amazing. As they sit during a time of crisis and think like, Okay, wow, this is on me now. Uh, What am I going to do with Jesus now? What am I going to do with the offer of forgiveness now? I have a decision to make. In the face of a tragedy, in the face of difficulties, there's an onus now on me to make a choice. It's not how you present it at the time of the funeral, but ultimately that's where you're trying to move people. And what Jesus is trying to do with this example is to show us that no one is exempt from trouble in this life and everyone needs a change in their life unless you repent, unless you repent. I read something years ago that I've used every now and again in funerals, especially whenever um, there's been different issues in, in, in the background. It's by Richard Loring, or sorry Bishop Richard Loring, who said that although we as humans beings, only have one life to live, we live three times. We have three separate spheres of life within this life. He said, phase number one is the nine months that we have in the womb. The gestation period for the human being, the zygote, becoming an embryo, becoming a fetus, becoming the baby it is born. It's beautiful. Those nine months is phase one. It is preparation for phase two, what we call life. Right now, a baby is born, it's much. But for that baby to come out of the womb, it's like a death. It's a death of that old way of life inside the womb. It feels like a death to that baby, not to the parents. The parents go, woo yes, we're parents. This is beautiful. We've brought someone into this realm of life. But the baby, not the baby, it's going, wow, it's crying. It doesn't want that. It's terrible. He's out there 30 seconds and someone's already smacked it on the backside and rubbed it down. It doesn't know what's happening. It's traumatic. Any wonder it cries. It's warm in there. It's freezing out here. It was nice and cozy and it's like someone's pulled the blinds open and I can't see. It must be the worst thing in the world for a baby. To have to leave a place that it knew was safe and warm and comfortable, not knowing what's on the other side, but not having a choice. But that nine months is used in preparation for the next stage, the next sphere of that same life. And that baby grows up to be whatever age, and then it dies. And this life is only phase two for a whole other sphere that will happen after this life. And that's what most people feel to prepare for. We prepare in the nine months, whether you like it or not, it's prepared for us. And then we are born, and now we have to make choices. And people put most of their eggs in door number two, in that basket. Unfortunately, we don't even think about what comes next, eternity, that longest period. And so we live one life, but we live it in three different worlds, as it were. Once in the womb, once in this life physically, and then forevermore somewhere. And that depends on the choices that we make as to where that will be. So Jesus cuts right to the chase. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In one sense, the response of Jesus to these tragedies, these tragedies, these national things that people are pointing to in the newspapers, and he says, well, so you think life's unfair? Do you really want to talk about what's fair? Do you really want to get into what is just? He could have used Paul words that he said in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. So if you want to talk about getting justice, fine, but you're not going to like how that conversation goes for you says, I'll talk to justice with you if you want, but I'd rather talk about grace. I'd rather talk about forgiveness. I'd rather talk about the chance to turn a life around. Repent. Stop being so fixated on this life. We all have one life on this earth, but it's only stage two of three. There's more to come. It's to prepare you for the next fear. In the same way, the first life in your womb prepares you for this life. This life is preparing for us for the next life. In the same way a baby in the womb can conceive of a life beyond what it knows in the womb, so too we now living our best life now still can't imagine what way our life would look in the next. But in the same way there's a totally new expression of the same life after birth, so too there will be a totally new expression in our new birth in Christ in heaven. Let me indulge me as I, as I tell you a story. It's not my story. I don't know where it came from, but it's fairly well known, so forgive me if you know it, but it's helpful even just now. In a mother's womb, there's two babies. One asks the other, Do you believe in life after birth? The other says, Oh, well, why? Of course I do. Uh, there has to be something after birth. Maybe we're here to prepare ourselves for what comes next. Pfft, says the other. There's no life after birth. What kind of a life would that even be? What would it look like? The second one says, well, I, I don't know. Maybe there'll be more light than what there is in here. Maybe we'll walk with our legs and eat with our mouths. We'll have all their senses that we don't understand now. That is the most absurd thing I have ever heard in all my life. Walking, that's impossible. No one I know has ever walked. No one eating with their mouths. What? What's the umbilical cord for then, if not for eating? Besides, the umbilical cord's so short we couldn't take that with us outside. The one—it doesn't make any sense. But the second baby insists. Well, I think there is something, and maybe it's different than what it is in here. Maybe we won't need a physical cord anymore. You're crazy. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one ever come back to the womb from there? Delivery is the end of life. And in the after delivery, there's nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion. It takes us nowhere. I don't know about that, said the second baby, but certainly we'll meet mother and she'll look after us. You still believe in mother? (laughs) that's laughable. If mother exists, where, where is she right now? Well, she's all around us. We're, we're surrounded by her. We are of her. It is in her that we live without her. This world that we know would not exist. said the first, well, I don't see her, so it's only logical that she doesn't exist. To which the second baby replied, well, sometimes in silence when you focus and you listen, you can perceive her presence. And you can hear her loving voice calling down from above. Out of the mouth of babes, huh? See, Christ very clearly to leave you in no doubt whatsoever says, look, we may not understand everything that's going on in this life. We may not understand why one person gets a lifetime to make a difference and to make an impact, and why some people only need moments, why some people only need days. Some people only have a short time to make an impact, an impact yet they make. We may not be able to grasp why some people get more time than others but it makes Christ's message all the more crucial. You need to be ready for the next stage of our lives, for the life that comes after this one. A prosperity gospel, which is a—it's not a real gospel, but a version of Christianity that says that God wants you to be happy, God wants you to be rich, God wants you to be healthy. Falls to pieces once you start going through the trials. And and there's been people in our fellowship this week and they've had to attend funerals and they've been bereaving. Where's the joy that the prosperity gospel promises? Where's the health that the prosperity gospel promised? It doesn't point anyone towards Jesus a prosperity gospel only makes people worship prosperity. Of course, I'll go for a Jesus that gives me a car. Of course, I'll go for a Jesus that keeps me physically safe and healthy. Who wouldn't want a Jesus that gives me a good marriage, lets me marry the girl of my dreams? I'll take your Jesus if the payoff's right. Sign me up. But that's not the way we're going to win the unseared friends. That's not the way we're going to make a difference, uh, or trying to dress the coolest, or or talking the coolest, or driving the coolest, or having the best tech, or putting on the best show. That's not going to get any praise for the suffering Christ of the cross. I don't know how the crowd reacted to what Jesus said. Scripture doesn't tell us. I'm not even sure how you're reacting to this message tonight. Because how natural is it that people want to know why bad things happen to godly people? Why would Christ ignore this opportunity? Why couldn't he say both? Why could he not have said, look, eternity is more important than now, so forget about all that stuff right now, but focus on that. But since you asked, here's why we've got sin in the world. Here's why we struggle in the brokenness of this world with broken people around us. He could have done that. So what I want to do having spent enough time on the central message let me close off our service with some thoughts on some natural disasters and i suppose specifically the likes of the coronavirus that so far has killed three and a half thousand people infected over a hundred thousand how do we respond with open bibles how do we adjust ourselves to deal with this because The reason why I talked to the boys and girls about this this morning at the kids' talk is because I don't want them to be afraid. And the reason I'm talking about it now is because I want you to have something, at least from my own heart, about it because sometimes Christians are really bad at dealing with this stuff. Really bad at dealing with this stuff. Because you'll have some Christians on one side that will say, listen, if you're in Christ, you're not going to get sick. You carry on licking the park benches and do whatever you want because nothing's going to happen to you. You're in Christ. And then there's other people who are in the bomb shelters, and they're just freaking out, and they're, they're the ones who've bought all the devil, and they're the ones that are bleaching the house every day, and that's why you can't buy toilet roll and Asda anymore for some reason. It's like, what about the rest of us? We need that still. Some people will maybe point to the 10th plague in Egypt where the angel of death passed over those who were trusting in the blood. And then Moses led those people out of slavery. History shows that that's a one-off. And it's not a reasonable theory to live by based on experiential evidence. Others will turn around and say, it's judgment. Anything new is different and it's scary, so it must be judgment. Unfortunately, as someone in our small group uh, shared in our WhatsApp group, um, as bad as the coronavirus is, we lost more people to cancer so far this week than we have to coronavirus. We've lost more people to poverty and starvation and malnutrition. So let's be careful about what we read into things. Be careful about putting weight on things that we don't know for sure what is happening. Let me quote John Piper. He said something quite interesting on his podcast about this. It's a slightly lengthy quote, but I think it gives us a good framework. Let me read it. Quote, let's start with an empirical historical fact and a clear Bible fact. The imperial fact is that on Boxing Day, the Lord's Day, Sunday, December 26, 2004, over 200,000 people were killed by a tsunami in the Indian Ocean, including whole churches gathered for worship on the Lord's Day, swept away to death. That's an historical fact. That sort of thing has happened to Christians as long as there have been Christians. Now, a, a biblical fact It's Mark 4 verse 41. Even the wind and sea obey him, Christ. That is as true now as it is then. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So put those two facts together, the historical fact and the biblical fact, and you get this truth. Jesus could have stopped the tsunami in 2004. Since he always does what is wise and right and just and good, therefore he had wise and good purposes in that deadly disaster. This is still a quote. I would say the same thing, therefore, about the coronavirus. Jesus has all knowledge and all authority over the natural and supernatural forces of the world. He knows exactly where the virus started and where it's going next. He has complete power to restrain it or not. And that's what's happening. Neither sin, nor Satan, nor sickness, nor sabotage is stronger than Jesus. He's never backed into a corner. He is never forced to tolerate what he does not will. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plan of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33. Or Job 42. I know that you can do all things, Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So the question is not, Whether Jesus is overseeing, limiting, guiding, governing all the disasters and all the diseases of the world, including their sinful and satanic dimensions, he is. The question is, with our Bibles open, how are we to understand this? Can we make sense out of it? End quote. The truth is, the reason each person may or may not contract this virus and others have a different response will vary totally from person to person even under the same roof if i contract it, and ruth does not that was god's decision if it kills me and doesn't kill someone else that has been god's decision but why it happens well that's totally up to god Could it be that God is saving them by preventing them going down a path that is dangerous? Perhaps there was someone who was going to go on a stag do to Italy and do something terrible, do something stupid. But God, in closing down the airports, in closing down Italy, in closing down perhaps even someone who would be traveling, has done them a wonderful mercy by stopping them from going. Or perhaps it could be that he puts you in your sickbed for two weeks so that you cannot go anywhere but deal with the sin that's in your heart, that you can't do anything other than spend time confronted by the ceiling and dealing and talking with him? Could it be that he simply wants to remind us all of the fragility of life, the limitations of this life, That we, in fact, can't control as much as what we think we can. That tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. Or it could be that God simply wants to remind us that he allows the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the righteous and the unrighteous alike. There are too many unknowns. Because God does not allow us to know his plans ahead of time. We can only look back in hindsight and look forward in faith. And trust that he is for us and not against us. Believing that at some point now or maybe only in eternity we can look back and understand what his good and perfect will for us was. But please listen. Do not allow your life to be marked by fear of this disease. Again, don't take silly risks. I said to the boys and girls this morning, wash your hands, use tissues, all those things. I can't believe we have to tell adults this in 2020, but apparently we do. Wash your hands. But there's no need to be living in fear. In situations like this, it is easy to lose faith and to live in fear of the headlines and the unknowns, especially as a multinational epidemic becomes a global pandemic. But God is still on the throne. The stronger man can still bind the strong man, and he will do. And for those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. This disease is not a punishment if you are a Christian. But that doesn't mean that God isn't using it to do something in your life. And until the other unknowns are made known, keep washing your hands. Be smart. Don't take silly risks. You're not indestructible. Trust in the Lord. And so often we will look to God and our cry is, but tell us why. Tell us, explain to us what's happening. Lord, if you were to give us a glimpse of what's going on and how you're working and why you're working in the way, then it would be so much easier to trust you. But you see, that's the problem. That's not trust. Trust is saying, I know who you are. And so I'm going to trust you even though I don't have all the answers. That's trust. If I said to my wife, I trust you completely, but text me where you are every five minutes. It's not trust. Trust is saying, I trust you. I know your character. Whatever will be. I trust you. I can't control everything. I don't know everything, but I trust you. We like to think having more of the information helps us to be stronger believers. The Bible continually tells us that that's not the case. If you were to go back to Exodus 16, verse 3, we read about the, uh, the, people, the children of Israel coming to, to the leadership and saying, Oh, you should have just let us die in Egypt. At least there we had food. We had the meat pots. We had bread and we were full And you've brought us into the wilderness to kill everyone with hunger. Hold on a minute. Is this not the same people that saw the ten plagues of Egypt? That that saw the the pillar of cloud by day and, and, and the pillar of fire by night? Is this not the same people that walked through the middle of the Red Sea and God just let them go through on dry ground and wiped out the Egyptian army? Is this not the same people who have seen God work and seen God move? And yet it would seem that it wasn't enough for them to trust Him. You should have just killed us. We're still hungry. You go into the next chapter. uh, You should have just killed us. We're thirsty. And yet God rains down manna and provides water from a rock. And yet despite all that God has done for them and does continually for them, they always want another piece of the puzzle no matter how much God gave them, they were never happy with enough of the answers. There was always more questions. There was always more that they wanted. And yet God there in the midst of them was still not enough. They still grumbled. They still complained. They still rebelled. If if God was looking after us, we wouldn't be hungry. If God was looking after us, we wouldn't be thirsty. If God was looking after us, we wouldn't be stuck in the wilderness. You see, it's impossible to live by faith if you already know all the outcomes. That's not faith. What it does do is create spoiled children. Why act like adults when you can get away with acting like a kid? Why, why worry if you can throw your toys out of the pram and you know that someone else is going to pick them up for you and it's all going to be okay because you know What's going to happen? We don't think out the consequences of our actions. We don't walk prayerfully. We don't walk faithfully. We don't walk with our attention folks fixed on him because we sure we know what's going to happen. God's guaranteed the results. That's not a path for maturity. Remember the three spheres? This life is preparing us for the next in the path that he is taking us down, even if they're marked, the, that road is marked by suffering and trials, it's not meaningless. There's a reason for it, even if it isn't revealed now, but it's revealed in the next sphere. How many spoiled children do you know who that become mature adults? And yet, again, you, you hear the question so many times, and I've been asked it so many times, even in the last four weeks. But if I just had this answer, Jeff, I want, but I wonder, though, if it really would improve the quality of our walk with God. Would we really grow in faith? It would seem that it's a faith that God isn't particularly interested in. I love this quote, and with this we're finished. Frederick Buchner says, without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there was no room for doubt, there'd be no room for me. That's why Jesus never told the people why suffering happened. And yet, listen, Christ also suffered. Suffered. He's not unfamiliar with what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. He also suffered. And so even in the times that we suffer, we have a chance to become more like him. When we suffer, we have a chance to show people that we are dependent on him, to show people what our faith is made of. When we suffer, we have the chance to prove our faith, to let people see how wonderful the peace of God is that passes understanding. And here's the thing there will be more people who will come to Christ through your suffering than through your triumphs. Because that's the meaning of Colossians one twenty four. It says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And it's an amazing statement. And just think about the history of missions for a moment. How did we get to 1.6 billion Christians on the earth And it started with just 12 in a little upper room. Suffering. There's never been a breakthrough into an unreached place or people group without suffering. If you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to live for Christ, if you're going to go and do that, then you have to mark it down. Pain, loneliness, marital, strife, betrayal, coronavirus, tensions. It's going to happen. Don't think it's strange when the fiery darts and the trials come. It's why God has given you an armor to wear. Jesus suffered and gave his life for our salvation. And the wonderful thing is that when we suffer, we join him in, in that display of the glory of the grace of God and the sufficiency of Christ. And the world will see, even in those times that we suffer, how satisfying he is in us. And it's a shame that so often it looks more like we're satisfied by what's happening on the other end of our phone or that we give up and doubt him the very first sign of it being hard. I can guarantee that this probably wasn't the message that you thought you were going to get. I can't tell you why you're going through what you're going through. I can't tell you how long it's going to take. I can't tell you how much more it's going to take from you in terms of energy, in terms of resources, in terms of constant. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that Christ is enough. I, I can tell you that, that Christ is sufficient and that even in our suffering, there is meaning. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing uh, another piece, and then we'll go um, I'll come up and close in prayer.